Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church, especially if you're visiting with us this morning. A little different with a baptism. Glad you're here with us to, to witness that, to uh, especially worship with us, our, um, our God, our Lord and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ, and now to come with us to God's Word, to hear from God and, and place ourselves under God. My name's Jesse. I'm the pastor here. We're coming to the end of our series that we've called uh, The Gospel According to Jonah, a series in which we've been walking through several principles of how to be a better reader of the Bible and then putting those principles to work in this little book. Today we're going to start to bring it all together because today we get to a principle called Main Idea and intended response. This is the one where, where all of what we've done so far, this is, this is what we've been coming to because this is what we're after when we come to a book like Jonah or come to dive into a particular passage. We're trying to understand what that book or passage is all about and then understand what we're supposed to do with it. The main idea an intended response. And in, in order to, to bring this all together today, we're going to focus our attention, at least to begin with, on the last part of this little book. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Jonah chapter 4. I'm going to begin by reading uh, from verse 1 all the way through to the end of the chapter. And I invite you to follow along with me as I read. If you remember, Jonah's preached to Nineveh. Nineveh's turned back to God. And God has then turned away from the disaster that Nineveh so deserved. And this is what we read in Jonah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. This is God's Word. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth of it for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plan and made it come up over Jonah that, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry 
for the plant. And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, while the questions you ask of Jonah as to whether or not you should pity those who do not know their right hand from their left, as to whether or not you should pity the city of 120,000 persons and much cattle besides. While that question finds no answer in Jonah, I pray that today it would find an answer in us. As those who not only know your heart for your world and know your heart most in the sending of your Son, but also as those who have that same heart growing in us. That yes, you should, and thank God that you have because you've had that same heart for us. In the name of your Son, Jesus, I pray. Amen. So I want to start today with a little game. This is how it's going to go. I'm going to hum a tune, sing a, sing a note or two, and you're going to sing the next line, okay? You ready? Tum, ta-dum, tum, tum, tum. Ta-dum, tum, tum, tum. Tum, ta-dum, tum, 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 tum. Tom, 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 tom. It's Alethea's birthday today. So happy birthday, right? It's Alethea's birthday. Okay, here's another one. This is a little, a little more tricky. You ready? You ready? Tom, 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 tom. Tom, 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 tom. How's it go from there? Tom, 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 tom. What is it? Beethoven's fifth, right? You know how I know that? from the movie with the dog, Beethoven, right? That's where I learned it, right? Beethoven's fifth. All right, one more, one more. You ready? Ta-dum, ta-dum. Tom, 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 tom. What is it? It's Jaws, right? That's the theme song to Jaws, right? You can't forget that. I remember going around the pool as a kid. That was what you would do to somebody, right? My sister would freak out, out of the pool, out of the house, out of the neighborhood. She was gone, right? You sing that song. Anyway, these are the notes, though, in each of these songs that form what's been called the melodic line, that specific sequence of those specific notes that that make those specific pieces of music what they are that defined them and distinguished them from each other and then from everything else. This is the melodic line, a melodic line that that even when it fades, if you're more familiar, especially not the happy birthday, but the more complicated music, Beethoven and Bach, 
a melodic line that even though it may fade at times to just an echo, or maybe even transposed into another key, it never quite disappears. And in the best musical pieces, tarries through and always comes back stronger at the end. Because again, it's that specific sequence of notes, that specific sequence of notes to make those specific pieces of music what they are, the melodic line. And here's another one, right? Right? Ta-da-dum, 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 tum-tum. Ta-da-dum, 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 tum-tum. Ta-da-dum, 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 tum-tum. Tum! Ta-da-dum, tum-tum. Right? Rossini's, that's the, the ode to, to William Tell. And it follows through. If you know those pieces from the very beginning introduced all the way to the end, one theme that carries through the whole and comes back stronger on the other side. Well, today, this is what I want to talk about, this thread that makes a, a piece of, of art, a piece of, of literature or music coherent, that pulls you through beginning to end and, and then leads you to where the composer or the, the artist or the musician wants to take you. And it's, it's been used to great effect, right, in movies, this, this thing, in, in the telling of stories. So like in Jaws, right, whether you're on uh, the boat or in the beach house, you can never in that movie get away from that incessant shark, right? Ta-dum, ta-dum. It doesn't matter where you are. Maybe the best example, though, is Lord of the Rings, right? on your way uh, through Middle-earth. And you can even be on the side of Mount Doom when the song of the Shire plays over. And all of a sudden, you know that there was a time at which life wasn't so bad. And maybe just a glimmer of hope that one day it's not going to be so bad again. The melodic line that, that pu- shows you, it pushes back, but then pushes forward. It draws you back, drives you forward to what's coming. The melodic line that unites a, a, a story or a musical piece to such an effect that it not only carries you along, but elicits within you then the response that you're supposed to have of fear or fury of despair, or at the best of times, hope. Just like a piece of music or a movie, every book of the Bible, too, has similarly a melodic line that an author will use to to take you from the beginning all the way through the, 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 the conflict in the middle and the climax towards the end to the final resolution. Every book of the Bible has this same melodic line, what we're going to call today the main idea and intended response. The book as a whole and the parts from which it's made. And today we're going to look at this principle as a a way of drawing everything that we've already looked at together in this little book, drawing all of that together. First, as we consider this final chapter of Jonah, and then as we step back to consider the book of Jonah 
as a whole. So if you can, take out that insert in your uh, bulletin, and uh, let's just start with this question. What do we mean by the main idea? What do we mean? Well, it's simply the main idea of a book like Jonah or a particular passage is simply the main point or the central message that a book of the Bible or any one particular passage is trying to make. The main idea about the main topic it's addressing. And identifying the the main idea is important because it first helps us see the focal point around which all other supporting ideas are organized. And as much as the supporting ideas are significant, like in Jonah where we've seen already this consistent concern for, for God's sovereignty, as much as that is an important idea, Those supporting ideas aren't what you're supposed to be focused on. The focal point, it's the main idea that we're supposed to be concerned about. Everything else supports that, right? Because that's why the author picked up their pen. That's why God in his providence so had that author pick up their pen to tell us what they wanted to tell us. And so we've got to catch what they're throwing. Catching the sovereignty isn't good enough if you don't see that, that it, in this instance at least, serves something more central. And identifying the main idea helps us see that focal point. Second, it helps us hear the message. It helps us hear what's being said about that topic. Not just to identify the topic that's being addressed, but to identify what's being said about it. So in Jonah, we're, we're, we're right to see that the, the focal point of this book is God's heart for the godless. You remember that? We've, we've established this at, by this point in the series. That this is about God's heart for the godless. Both for godless nations and for God's godless prophets. Still, though, that's just the topic that's being addressed. We need to then dig deeper if we're going to hear what Jonah is saying about that topic. So identifying the main idea helps us do that. And and third, it then helps us communicate that message faithfully to others. So it helps us identify the focal point, understand what's being said about it, and then communicate that to others. And I want to just take a moment then to try to identify the main idea of Jonah chapter 4. This sheet goes into a few steps. I want to just walk through these with this particular chapter. Are you ready? So remember, you could do this for both particular passages and for whole books of the Bible in general. I want to start today with this chapter, and there's three steps to doing this that are outlined there. The first is to just observe, right? To let the Bible speak for itself, just like we've been trying to let it do all along, to just simply observe, to look especially for things like the relationship between the passage's beginning and its end, to look especially for the repetition of important words or ideas, and then to look especially for the conclusion where we land or summary verses in between, or purpose statements, where the the author will actually tell you sometimes, don't miss this, this is what it's about, right? So I want to look for these. What do do we see when we come to Jonah chapter 4? How does it begin, and how does it end? 
Not a bad place to start. Well, it begins with Jonah's displeasure, right? Do you see that in verse 1? It says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. It's quite strong language, right? Displeased him, and he was angry. Jonah's displeasure, because he disapproves. He's disappointed, and is therefore quite discontent. Many would say on the verge of, if not drowning at this point, in depression, right? It's better for me to die than to live because of God. You see, it's because of God. He's displeased with God. It's not always this. Just take a little aside here. It's not always this, but the first question when you feel like that when you feel displeased, disapproving, disappointed, discontent, either slipping into or drowning in depression. First question in that is whether it's not because you're displeased with God. If whether that's why you've landed where you are, whether you're sitting under God or or somehow have worked yourself into a position over God. It's not always the case, and and there's a, a world of complexity surrounding the depression, the brokenness that we feel in our own lives. But the first question to ask is, have I somehow bound God to my expectations or somehow unbound myself to his. If you're in a place where you can't even have the conversation and you'd rather just die, which I know many of us have been there, first question is whether you're sitting under God. And even if it's not the case, that is this, in this particular instance, you've, you, you've somehow, in that instance, you've, you've somehow flipped the relationship. If that's the case, if that's not the case, oftentimes just a renewed vision of God, even if you haven't slipped into that, that situation, just a renewed vision of who God is and what God is about and a reminder of all God's done will actually be that lifeline when all you want to do is take your life. So if you're depressed, the flip side of that, or walking with someone who is depressed, best thing you can do for them, best thing you can do is to wash them or be washed with the Word. And then to put yourself in the community of those who will do that for you. Which is ironic, isn't it? Because when we're most depressed, it's in those moments we want to most isolate ourselves from everyone else. Not saying it solves all the complexity, yet when we are there, the thing we need the most is to go back to the fount. For Jonah, though, the chapter begins very clearly with Jonah in that place, alone, and Jonah out from under the Word of God, and Jonah standing over the decision of God in the judge's seat, and Jonah 
depressed. How does it end? The displeasure of Jonah on the front end? Look at verse 11. It ends with God's pity. With God's pity. It says that God asked, should not I pity Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and much cattle besides. Violent as they are, deserving of disaster as they are, that they don't have a clue. Should I not then pity Nineveh? So from beginning to end, this chapter is a contrast between the, the heart of God and the heart of God's supposed servant. Between the, the pity of the Almighty and the disappointment of His emissary. One might say the, the, the compassion of God on the one hand and His unhappy camper. Because there's no fire to roast my marshmallow on because Nineveh's not burning like he wanted it to. What about repetition? This is the next thing to look for if you're, you're just trying to observe a passage. What about repetition? Well, the big one is Jonah's declaration. First in verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And then he says it again, the end of verse 8. It is better for me to die than to live. But the repeti- repetition is also God's reply, isn't it? That he asked Jonah in verse 4, Do you do well to be angry? Then again in verse 9, this time for the plant, Do you do well to be angry? And you begin to see that the the contrast between God's compassion and this unhappy camper is actually a question as to whether Jonah's displeasure is justified. That's the question on the table. And these questions of God actually serve then as the summary statements. Take my life. Do you do well? It is better for me to die. Do you do well? Yes, angry enough to die. Should not I have pity? Should not I also and all the more have pity on Nineveh? That's the first step, to just observe. Second step is then to identify the structure. This is that principle we looked at two weeks ago, the the picture of the bridge, right? Where the major ideas of whatever you're looking at in the Bible, the major ideas support and hold up and bear the weight of the main idea and the direction the whole thing is driving, right? You remember the picture? So second, the second step to this is to move from just observation to identifying the structure. This is that principle, right? We looked at two weeks ago, the bridge. So here we've got to consider how the development of chapter 4 emphasizes a single point. 
bears up a single point, how it supports one central message. And if I were just to divide this up, if I was doing this in my study, looking at this passage myself for my devotions or, or getting into it for, for something else, I was going to share it with the kids later or something to that effect, I'd probably organize it around those three questions God asked. Don't those stick out? They just almost jump off the page, don't they? Verse 1 to 4, Jonah, I can see you're angry about the Ninevites. Do you do well? Verses 5 to 9, now you're angry about the plant. Do you do well? And then verses 10 to 11, whether you think you do well or not, that's beside the point. The real question is, if you would pity the plant, do I not do well to pity the ones you have no pity for? Because you pity the plant for which you did not work, Jonah. That came in a day and went in a day just to save your sore head from getting sunburned. It's often where my pity goes too, right? Where I'm most compassionate about whether I'm most comfortable. And yet here's a a people for which I did work, Jonah. Which I created, Jonah. And a people that I'm going to put to work, Jonah. Because your people have refused to work for me, Jonah. And so I'm going to make them work to discipline the ones who should have worked. Should I not pity them also? 120,000 persons. All those cows for whom I care and have a purpose. Do you do well? Do you do well? Should I not also pity Nineveh? So first, observe. Second, identify the structure. And then third, ask these two questions. And these are central to getting to that that place that all what we've been doing is trying to arrive. These two questions. First, what is the topic that the author is addressing? It's not about a fish anymore, right? What is the topic that the author is addressing? And then second, what specifically is the author saying about it? It's not too difficult, but those are the central questions to figuring this out. What is the author addressing? What's the topic the author is addressing? And what is the author saying about it? And here I think it's safe to say that the author's attention here is on this thing he calls pity compassion, a turning on the inside, an uncontrollable gut reaction that he's addressing on the one hand the misplaced pity of this guy, and on the other hand the absolutely astounding pity of God. That whoever wrote this story down or or wrote this story up is addressing the absurdity of the hardened heart of a hardened prophet and asking whether such a prophet even knows the God they supposedly serve. So you might say that the author uses this pitiless prophet, one to four, who turns into a pitiful spectator 
5 to 9 to highlight the unlikely, unexpected, undeserved, unbelievable pity of God. Verses 10 and 11. That'll preach for your devotions with the kids at night. You can move them with the Word of God, right? But to stop there means we've only gotten halfway because that's only half of the job. The other half concerns, right, this melodic line, not just the theme that unites the whole, the thread that runs throughout, but the response that it's meant to elicit, the intended response, like the fear in Jaws. Ta-dum, ta-dum. Or the hope of the Shire song. So we've got to ask, to identify this intended response, what response does the author want to see in the audience? And that's what we're looking for. Not what response is, am I being moved to? What response am I feeling? What response am I sensing? No, the question is, what was the author doing? Because that's who God spoke through. What was the author looking for in the hearts of the audience? And it seems at this point like it's not enough to simply marvel at the compassion of God. It's not enough. It's not enough to stand back and wonder, in in wonder at the compassion of God. As appropriate as that is, it's not all there is here. Or even enough to acknowledge the absurdity of this compassionless prophet. What is the author looking for? The only appropriate response is that God's people would reflect God's heart for God's world. That though Jonah attempts to answer the question, do you do well? Do you do well? Of course I do. That question was, in fact, as rhetorical as the one that follows. Should not I also pity Nineveh? So that implicit then, in that question, embedded in that question, pregnant in that question, is a final question that the whole book has been driving forward to. Then should not you also? So here's how I would state it for chapter 4. In a descriptive sentence, okay? This is one way to say it. A descriptive sentence of what the passage says about the topic it addresses. That here, a pitiless prophet who turns into a pitiful spectator is used to highlight the excessive, extravagant, extraordinary pity of God in order that the prophet and no less the people listening to his story might reflect that pity themselves. Or then you could do a a prescriptive sentence 
that you and no less I should reflect in ourselves and in our lives the pity and compassion of God for those who do not know Him. Had our first membership class yesterday, another, another one again, starting next Tuesday, shameless plug, right? Not next Tuesday, the Tuesday after Thanksgiving. You should be there. It was a really great time. I learned a ton that I didn't know before. So I have this, but one of the highlights for me, uh, other than walking through especially the stories of each other, uh, the story of our church, one of the highlights for me was walking through again this story of our faith that we've, we've put together over this past season, a- and reading again, especially this one phrase that, that struck me in a way that it hasn't, and I was part of writing this, but struck me in a way that it hasn't before. It's one of these statements that, um, that just jumped off the page to me, that we are or intend to be a community who not only loves Jesus and loves Jesus' followers, but a community that loves this world that Jesus loves so much. That we're a community, we want to be a community that not only loves Jesus, and loves Jesus' followers, but a community that loves also this world that Jesus loves so much. Because that's what this is. It's a world Jesus loved so much. And as his followers, it doesn't make sense for us not to love it too. Do you do well? Do you do well? Should I not? Should you not also? But at this point, having seen every part of this book, we we should turn to ask, what's the main idea and intended response of the whole? We should back up, as it were, and try to identify the melodic line that not only unites the chapter, but unites the entire story, both the main idea and the intended response that that runs through from beginning to end, which if we got chapter 4 right, shouldn't be too different, right, if we're reading this the way it was meant to be read. Here, though, if we're going to look at the whole, we come full circle to where we started. Do you remember? Remember where we started, the, the principle of just stop and listen, that we, that we actually read the entire book in one sitting and, and, and came away from that saying, wow, this really doesn't seem to be what we, we typically think of it. It's just a story about God's heart for the godless in terms of nations, but seems to be what? God's heart for the godless, also the prophet, right? That this is God's heart for both sides. That this is not just about a godless nation, but to be just as much about God's heart for the godless prophet who can't stand that nation, right? Because Jonah's problem Jonah's problem in this book, as becomes all too apparent in this last chapter, isn't with the the badness of the world, but with the goodness of God. 
He's taking God to task. No wonder he's depressed. If you really want to work yourself into a depression, really want to work yourself, there's other things that can happen, brokenness all around us. But if you really want to do it to yourself, take God's throne for your own. Try and hold the weight of the world on your shoulders, and you will experience a level of depression that cannot be reached otherwise. And here's Jonah. Yet as much as Jonah is running after God's throne, God is always and ever running after Jonah. It's why he's depressed. He's why he's displeased. It's why he disapproves and is disappointed and discontent, and yet right on his heels, all the time, all day long, God is running behind. No matter how fast, right? No matter how fast he runs, how far he goes, how furious he gets, God is still speaking in the end. It's not a bad takeaway for those of us who've stopped speaking to someone, maybe even on the car ride here this morning. It's not a bad takeaway because you know, no matter what it is, you can't be justified nearly as much as God is to stop speaking to us. It's not possible, and yet God never does. It's just a little, little tidbit. The story, though, we have to understand is just as much about God's heart for a godless nation God's heart for a godless nation extended into God's heart for this godless prophet. And not just a prophet, but God's heart for his godless people afterwards. Because God will not rest. God will not rest, will not content himself with, will not be satisfied until God's godless people share God's heart for this godless world. Because it's the same heart God had for his godless people. That no matter how far we run from God's heart, chapter 1. That no matter how much we'd like to change God's heart, chapter 2. No matter how boldly we reject God's heart, chapter 3. Or how hard we stand against God's heart chapter 4, God will not rest, will not content himself with, will not be satisfied until God's people in their heart for this world reflect his heart for them. That's the story of Jonah. Let me end then by encouraging you that this is a story for us. That this is a story for you. And that this is a story for all. First, that this is a story for us. Which is why the, the question is left hanging at the end. Should not I? Should not you too? 
but goes unanswered, right? Which makes for kind of an awkward bedtime story. But on the other side, makes for a very powerful point because it's a question that extends beyond Jonah to anyone who would pick this book up and read it for themselves. What about us? Whether we'll reflect in our heart for others, our grace for others, our mercy for others, our fidelity and faithfulness to others, pity and patience for others, our kindness and compassion for others, for our family and friends, for our coworkers and clientele, for our neighbors or our nemesis, or our neighborly nemesis, or our nemesistic neighbors. Whether we will reflect in our hearts for others what we've known for ourselves, because until we do, not least the heart we've seen in Jesus dying for us on the cross, going to that furthest length of saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. They don't know their right hand from their left. Not until we reflect a heart like that do we know the one we supposedly serve. And the question is left hanging because it's a question for us because this is a story for us. We are Jonah. Second, this is a story, though, for you. It's a story for you. For when you find yourself in Anne of Green Gables' depths of despair, maybe it's the the princess bride's pit of despair, or for serious, wherever you find yourself in despair. This is a story for you. For whatever it is and wherever you are, to call your heart back when you wander out from under God's Word or or up onto God's throne and you reap all the reward, all the depressive reward, This is a story for you. The reward for for trying to hold God accountable to something other than God, as if you know better than God. For trying to escape the accountability to God, thinking He doesn't know better for you. This is a story for us, an invitation back, because as far as you've run, as far as you've slipped, as hard as you've stood, God still speaks. God always speaks. And if depression is something you struggle with, as I'm sure that most of us do in some sense, at some level, if depression is something you struggle with, at some level. Let me say again, that's part of our brokenness. It is extremely complex, complicated, but there's always room to ask, have I wandered myself? To ask the the first question, if we haven't landed ourselves in depression because we've jumped out from under God's will, we've jumped out from under God's Word. And if you have, this is a story for you, and an encouragement to wash yourself and be washed and put yourself in the company of those who will wash you 
with his word again. So it's a story for us. Second, it's a story for you. Lastly, it's a story for all. No matter how far someone runs from God, no matter how much someone would like to change God, no matter how boldly someone rejects God, or how hard someone stands against God. Because in the end, this is a story about a guy who did just that. This is a story about a guy who, our best guess, our best guess is that this was based on his own testimony. That as embarrassing as a story as this is, both embarrassing for the guy in it, but all the more so embarrassing for his own people, that this is a story that was written up by this guy who to the very bitter end ran his own way. And yet a story about a guy, as best as I think we can tell, that this final question changed his life. Should I not, should you not also, that something finally clicked and he found that the God he was running from had run after him all along. So it's a story both for that guy and for all his people after him. That it's actually a story written by him for whom God's last question changed everything. Which means it's not just a story for us. It's not just a story for you. It's a story for everyone. No matter where we are when we first hear it, because a story about a God like this can change your life too. Let me pray. Tell me, Father, we are not today who we ought to be. Not today who we wish to be. Not who we hope to be or by your power will someday be. But likewise, for those of us who are found in your Son, Jesus, we are not what we once were. And are who we are, but by your grace, and therefore have great confidence. May we have great confidence from this day forward forevermore that one day we will be who we were meant to be. I pray it would be ever more and ever so. In the name of Jesus, amen. For joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K I S H Bible.org.